The men of, Gideon, of Ephraim are upset. They confront Gideon. Hey, why didn't you call us when you went down there and whipped all them Midianites? Who are we anyway? You know, they were slighted. They were offended. And what we need to learn from this back and forth is Gideon's response. Now, Gideon could have said, Lord, have mercy, children. The Lord sent away 99% of my army. He only left me with 300. I couldn't call for y'all because I sent so many of them home. All of them that were scared got to go home. And then when we went down to drink, the Lord said, only take the ones that went down on the knee and, and bring it up to their mouth. And, and lap, like a dog, that was only 300. I only had 300 folks. Instead of making a bunch of excuses, take notice of how Gideon responds to this. A soft answer turns away wrath. You read that in the book of Proverbs. Instead of arguing with them, he compliments them. What have I done in comparison to what you've done? Why, I ain't done nothing. Look at what y'all done. Y'all got the princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. I ain't, you know, I ain't really done that. Y'all are the ones that have accomplished a great feat, and it satisfied their wounded pride. And, and here's the thing. Folks that are that proud, it'll work every time. Instead of arguing with someone who is full of pride, compliment them, and that will soothe them. And you don't have to lie, do anything wrong but they'll soothe them right out. That's exactly what Gideon does here with the men of Ephraim. Instead of arguing with them, instead of pleading this case, hey, what have I done? Look at what you, you, you fellows have done. You got Oreb. Who would name their child Oreb and Zeb anyhow? But he, he, you know, he, he said, you have got these princes of, of Midian, and what I've done really in comparison to what you have done ain't that much. Y'all have done the greater work. Y'all are to be complimented. Y'all are to be lauded. Y'all are, you know, really, I'm looking for a word here. <laughs> what he does, he pets their ego, and they relent, and then they're satisfied. Verse 4. When Gideon came to the Jordan, he and the 300 men who were with him crossed over, exhausted, but still in pursuit. He still got 300 men, folks. Then he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me. For they are exhausted, and I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmanah, kings of Midian. And the leaders of Succoth said, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmanah now in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, For this cause, when the Lord has delivered Zeba and Zalmanah into my hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. That's his threat. He goes to them. My guys are, are hungry. We're exhausted. How about giving us a little bit of something to eat so we can continue the pursuit? And they go, and the response is, hey, you ain't caught up with them yet. You ain't whooped them yet. You know, and what they're thinking is if we help you and then you get defeated, they're going to come down and put a whooping on us. But Gideon's response to that is because you have refused to help the army of the Lord, the 300 chosen by God himself, who've already won a great victory, because you have denied that. When I get through, when the Lord does this and I get through, I'm going to take care of y'all. We're going to find out how he does that a little later on. Verse 8. Then he went up from there to Penuel, spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth had. So he also spoke to the men of Penuel, saying, When I come back in peace, I will tear down this tower. Now, Gideon's got a little, you know, he's, he's got a little, you know, I don't call it anger issues. I, you could say he, he's, it's a righteous anger that he's got. 
But his response is not, well, it'll be all right. His response is, when the Lord gets through with this stuff, I'm going to come back and I'm going to see about you folks. He threatens them. Now, that ain't nothing but pure human nature. I mean, he's caught up in it. I'm sure he's hungry, too. Uh, he, he had to go through all that with his army being whittled down, but he has seen the Lord perform a great miracle. And he is in the midst of that right now. So Gideon's faith is in God, but he is upset with these folks who will not give him reasonable assistance. Verse 10. Now, Zeba and Zalmana were at Karkor, and their armies with them, about 15,000, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east. Listen. 300 men come up against this massive army for 120,000 men who drew the sword had fallen. Now think about that for a second. Gideon has 300 men and up to this point only about 15,000 are left of his enemy because 120,000 men who drew the sword were dead. And God has done this. Remember what he said when he told Gideon, your army's too big? If y'all go against them and your army being this large, when you win the victory, you'll say, yeah, we done it. And then if I whittle them down so much, you'll still say, yeah, we done it. But I'm going to whittle you down to 300 so nobody will be able to say, we did this in our own strength. That the only thing they'll be able to say when everything's said and done is our God is a mighty God. It, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. They have already seen 120,000 men fall. Now those numbers are staggering. 300 men ain't a pea in a dish against the numbers that they were up against. Now all this does is enforce to us the confidence that one man and God is a majority. And you know what the truth is? And this is going to hurt our pride. God don't need our help. He can get it done. There are some folks who have elevated themselves. Say, oh, Lord, it won't get done unless I do it. I got news for them. God don't need them or anybody else. He can raise up uh, somebody, an old uh, expression years ago, he can raise up a boy out of the cornstalks to get his job done, to accomplish his will. He, he will use whoever is willing to be used because it's not their talent. It's not their natural ability that gets it done. It is the direct intervention of God Almighty. It is the anointing of the Holy Spirit that makes the difference. Amen. So and I, I just it just froze me. 120,000 men up to this point are dead. Then Gideon, verse 11, went up by the road of those who dwelled in tents on the east of Nobah and Jogbaha, and he attacked the army while the camp felt secure. When Zeba and Zalman fled, he pursued them, and he took the two kings of Midian, Zeba and Zalman, and routed the whole army. So he took care of the rest of them. He still only got 300 men, folks. 300 men up against 15,000 that were left, he, the camp felt secure. Who wouldn't? Yeah, we're all right. No, you're not. Because one man in God makes a difference. God makes a difference in the life of one man. 
And God has made the difference in the life of 300 men and gave them the victory over superior numbers. It just don't make any kind of sense at all other than the fact that the Lord said, I will do this. When you read in your Bible that God says, I will do something, believe it. Take it to the bank, put it in a secure place, believe it, rest on it. Don't worry about it. When God says, I will do something, don't worry about it. Amen. He's going to do it. The only, the only t thing that would change his mind will be an opportunity to express mercy. Remember how I shared with you how Jonah was, was, uh, you know, was upset because God didn't destroy the Ninevites? And he, a few years later he did. But at that time, because they repented, God didn't destroy them and Jonah got mad about it. The only time God's going to change his mind, you read it in the scripture, is when there's an opportunity for mercy. Aren't you just tickled that he's that way? Boy, I am. I'm thankful that, th thankful that he prefers mercy over judgment. Amen. I'm, I'm, I'm thankful that that's his attitude. But when you read he's going to do something, he's going to do it. Jesus said, I've come to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus said, if you believe on me, I'll save you. The word of God says it shall come to pass in the last days that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And that's where we are. And that's what, exactly what he's doing. Isn't that wonderful? Praise God. You mean I ain't got to go to the bank and get all my money out of the bank or, or jump through all these hoops? No, he said you call on my name. Believe on me and I'll save you. Ask the male factor on the cross. Lord, when you're in your kingdom, remember me. Wow. And what the Lord said, you know, verily I say unto you this day, you shall be with me in paradise. You know what the paraphrase of that is, son? I just saved you. I'm going to give up my life. You're going to die. But don't, don't worry about dying because I'm going to escort you into Abraham's bosom today. You will be with me in paradise. And that's what we are to base our lives on, what the Lord has said. Thus, you know, the 47 revision, you know, the archaic English is, thus saith the Lord. When you read that, believe it. What he has said, he will do. Amen. Now, verse 13, Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle from the ascent of Heres, and he called a young man of the men of Succoth and interrogated him, and he wrote down for him the leaders of Succoth and its elders, 77 men. I want to know who's in charge of Succoth. I got business with them. So the fellow told him and he wrote them down. Then he came to the men of Succoth and said, Here are Zeba and Zalmana, about whom you ridiculed me, saying, Are the hands of Zeba and Zalmana now in your hand, that we should give bread to your weary men? And he took the elders of the city, 77 of them, and thorns of the wilderness and briars, and with them he taught the men of Succoth. He what? He taught them? What does that mean? That means he took them briars and he just whooped the fire out of them in good old southern English is exactly what he did. He taught the men of Succoth. He beat the men of Succoth. I tell you what, I, I, well, I'll just go ahead and do it for the day in which we live. How many in this house right now can lift your hand and say, Brother Andy, I know what it is 
for my mama or my daddy to strap my legs with a keen hickory switch. Raise your hand. You know what's wrong with, with our society today is there ain't much that going on. That is unpleasant. I, I, remember, I remember Sister Bowling, God love her. Don't you hit them with your hand. You get you a keen hickory switch and strap their legs. Oh, wow, break the blood. <laughs> Don't you pop them with your hand. You might hurt, you might bruise them if you hit them with your hand. You get that switch. How many of you had to go out and cut the switch? Amen. How many of you knew the kind of switch you had better bring back in that house? I tried that once with my granny Ruby. I got this little pitiful. Here you go. Boy, she, let, she set me on fire and sent me back. Said, you better not bring nothing like that back in this house. Oh, no, 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 God. Got to make that noise. That's right, Sister Beverly. Said, your sons are going to grow up and be fine men, well-adjusted. Don't worry. They're in the house of God. That's all they're going to remember. But I'm just telling you, man, that had to hurt. Now, here's the thing. Nobody ever whooped me with briars, you know. But this is what Gideon did. Gideon thought about it. Not only am I going to whoop you when I come back, I'm going to whoop you with a briar. So he goes out and gets, you know, with the thorns. And he had to have several of them whoop 70-something men, but he done it. He done it. He taught the men of Succoth. In other words, he whooped them. But he ain't done. Verse 17, then he tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. He whooped the men of Succoth, but the men of Penuel, he just took them out. And he said to Zeba and Zalmana, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? So they answered, As you are, so were they. Each one resembled the son of a king. Then he, Gideon, said to them, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. So Gideon has a personal issue with these kings. Who were those men that you killed? Well, they resembled you. They looked like you. He said, yeah, they should. They were my brothers. They were the sons of my mother, and you killed them. If you hadn't killed them, I'd let you live, but you killed them, so you, can, you know what's fixing to happen. And he said to Jether, his firstborn, Gideon does, rise, kill them. But the youth would not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. And I can understand that. He's just a young man. Daddy said, kill him. And they're like, he's like, kill him. And he's probably thinking, why don't you just whip him with a briar like you did back up in Succoth? But these men ain't going to get the briar treatment. So in verse 20, so Ziba and Zalmana said, talking to Gideon, rise yourself and kill us. For as a man, man is, so is his strength. So they kind of, you know, cop this attitude. You know, don't, don't tell the boy to do it. You do it. You want to kill us, you do it yourself. But man, they're shooting off her mouth at the wrong man. For as a man is, so is his strength. In other words, if you've got the guts to kill us, Gideon, you kill us. Don't ask the boy to do it. If you're a man, be a man. you got the guts to kill us, have at it. So Gideon arose and killed Ziba and Zalmana and took the crescent ornaments that were on their camel's neck. 
Not only did Gideon kill them, but he took all the stuff they'd put on their car, or in a modern-day way of looking at it, took all the ornaments off their camel's neck. And it's, it's, and we're going to get into this a little bit, a few more verses on down. But it, it, it just struck me, and I know this ain't got nothing to do with nobody's salvation, all right? But everybody does something, just about everybody does something to your car. You get a car, but then you want to make it your car. You want to do something to it. Or I do, anyway. I just put it on me. I want to do a little this, make it a little different. Just give it a little individual personality, you know. Well, that's nothing new in, in the human genome. Because way back then, they put ornaments on their camels. Gold chains, if you had the money, on your camel. And when you walk by, you know, and, if, and let's just say Denny just lived living back then, and, and he gets him a two-hump camel because he's got a good job, and he's got money, he got a two-hump camel, and he got all this gold and stuff, and he walks by, and goes, ooh, there goes Dennis's camel. Boy, it's sharp. That's a two-humper. Look at all that stuff he's got on it. Man, it's sharp. Nice. I wonder how good it runs, you know. Gideon kills these guys. They shot their mouth. I mean, Gideon's going to kill them anyway. But when they stood up, and I guess something could be said for them, the fact that they showed a little backbone, knowing they were about to die. You, if you're man enough to do it, you do it. And Gideon said, I sure enough be man enough, boys. Y'all are going down. He kills them. I'm going to take the gold off your camels. Verse 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now the men of Israel make a mistake. They say, Gideon, you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Gideon did not deliver them from the hand of Midian. God delivered them from the hand of Midian. Gideon was just the instrument that God used. God delivered them from the hand. And to Gideon's credit, instead of stepping into this opportunity and saying, yeah, I'll be king, he says, no, I won't be king, my son won't be king, my grandson won't be king. The Lord will rule over us, which was the proper response, inasmuch as he gives the Lord credit for deliverance from the Midianites. Verse 24, but here we go. Here comes old human nature. Then, having done the right thing, Gideon said to them, <clears throat> I would like to make a request of you that each of you would give me the earrings from his plunder. For they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Now, you could get into a lot of stuff there that gets you, you know, burned at the stake. But that's what the Bible says, because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder. That's a bunch of earrings. Right at, what, 300,000 people. Now, the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold besides the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midians and beside, here we go again, and beside the chains that were around their camels' necks. So Gideon says, I, I want to make one request, though. <laughs> Pay me. Give me the money. Now, back then, they didn't have, you know, paper money. They said, give me the gold. So they give him the gold. I mean, they're glad to do it. It's just an expression of, of appreciation. And Gideon becomes very wealthy from this because that's a whole bunch of gold. Verse 27. 
Then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Orpah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Now what does he do? He makes an, an ephod. What is that? That is a square piece similar to that which the priest wore on their garments. He sets it up in his city. Now when I dug into this, that ephod was originally a symbol of political authority. So Gideon, having turned down the opportunity to be, be made king, sets up this ephod in his town, and it is a symbol, a reminder to everybody of what happened uh, with Gideon. It's, it's a symbol originally of political authority, but it becomes attached with religious significance. Kind of like uh, the um, artifacts. That's not the word that will come to me. That the Roman Catholic Church has. They have parts, you know, about a dozen different cathedrals say we have a sliver of the cross. Somebody's got the Apostle John's big toe and other uh, deals, and they are venerated uh, as objects that were close to Jesus. The Road. How many of y'all saw that movie, The Road? Well, that's, it's a good movie about some, some Romans that get saved. But look, folks, ain't no power on that road. If you could produce the cross, Jesus was crucified on. There's no power in that wood. It's all about Jesus, not the stuff that he wore. It's all about his person, you know. I've talked with folks, you know, uh, have gone to Israel. And, uh, and, and a lot of folks, like, go, they go to Jerusalem, go down the Bella Della Rosa, the same uh, path that Jesus took on the way to Calvary and are just overcome emotionally. This, I, I am standing in a place where my Jesus stood. And that's good. There ain't nothing wrong with that. But man, don't attach no religious significance to that because he ain't there anymore. Jesus is not on the cross anymore. They took him down, his body down. They put it in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. And on Sunday morning when they went back to finish what they couldn't finish because of the onset of the Sabbath, ha, it was empty. And it still is. Praise God. So what are you talking <laughs> Our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Boy, I appreciate everything. Boy, didn't Brother Kenny Morris preach? That went, my, my, my. It's the, it's the who, who is, you know, drawn from the wells of salvation? What is Jesus' salvation? The person of Jesus Christ is salvation. And the wonderful thing about it is we don't have to go to Jerusalem to experience it. No matter where you are, no matter where you are, you can call on his name. Ain't that great? You can get saved anywhere. Remember that guy we had been years ago? Ah, oh, I forgot his name. Jim something. And he had one of them campus ministries where he, when he went around and, and he'll, he'll go on the free speech area of a college campus and proclaim the gospel and, and all kind of, you know, stuff will break out around him you remember where he shared with us where he got saved he got saved at a Metallica concert at the very front because the lead singer was tearing up pages out of a bible and throwing them into the audience and there he was and he just happened to catch one but the one he caught <laughs> when he read it I mean, right there in the front of that, all that blood-spitting, nasty garbage. Just hell on earth itself. There that man is with a P 
page out of the New Testament that he reads and is overcome with conviction and falls on his knees in front of that stage with all that loud going on and asks Jesus Christ to forgive him of his sins and to save his soul. And that man walked out of that place saved. Now that's just a great example of a truth that Jesus Christ can save anybody, anywhere, at any time. We think it's all got to be, oh Lord, we got to have everything just right in church somebody gets saved. No, Lord can save somebody walking down the road. He can save somebody sitting in jail. He can save somebody in an IC unit at the hospital. He can save somebody on their last leg, and he can save somebody with their last breath. Praise God. They set this thing up, and they gave it religious significance that it did not deserve, because that ephod did not deliver them, and neither did Gideon. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one who delivered them from the Midianites. So let's not all, because, you know, we can, you know, do stuff. And, I, and I'm, you know, I like the history of the church, history of the Pentecostal church, history of the Pentecostal church in Stuart County especially. I like stuff like that. I took I don't know how many folks up to Brother Buckaloo's grave back there behind Spring Creek Baptist Church in that cemetery up in the far right-hand corner. You'll see a tombstone that says Buckaloo. That's where Brother and Sister Buckaloo's remains were. They aren't there. And their remains turned to dust a long time ago. They're in the presence of the Lord. But just, just because that's where they were buried, you know, I'll have preachers, hey, man, uh, Brother So-and-so said you took him to Buckaloo's gravesite. Can you take me? Sure, I'll take you. Let's go up there, you know. I, I don't draw nothing from that. All, uh, their their deep, decomposed remains is all that's in them graves. Brother and Sister Buckaloo ain't in them graves. And there is no power associated with that. It's not a talisman. It's not a good luck charm. It's just a historical thing. You go, well, and really what it is, you say, well, thank you, Jesus, that a man like Buckaloo lived. Hallelujah. Let's go get something to eat, you know. Took Brother Roebuck up there, the historian of the Church of God. He wanted to go see it. Have a picture made, Brother Byron. Brother Byron said, you going to put that in Evangel? I thought, I bet he don't. <laughs> he didn't. But anyway, my point here, without getting into all this, you put the ephod up, it was like, you know, I'm Gideon. Y'all remember what uh, I'm associated with, the deliverance from the Midianites. And then they gave it a religious significance, and it became a snare. All right, verse 38. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more. And the country was quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. What happened? The children of Israel disobeyed the Lord. It got them in a mess. God allowed the Midianites to rule over them. They cried out to God. God sent a deliverer in the person of Gideon. God delivered them from the Midianites. And they had peace and quiet for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbabel, the son of Joash, who is Gideon, she could have said then Gideon, son of Joash, Went and dwelt in his own house. Verse 30. Here's an interesting historical point. Gideon had 70 sons who were his own offspring, for he had many wives. This is an influence of the Canaanites who were still in the country. 
And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now, it doesn't tell us exactly how many wives Gideon had, but he had enough wives that he could sire 70 sons and then had a concubine in Shechem. Now, this is under a very different economy than what we enjoy in the New Testament. Personally, a man with nine wives has lost his natural mind. I'm just, can I get an amen? I have one wife, and that's good, you know. Lord's been good to me. And, I, and, and, and to share with you, and Sister uh, Ruthie Colley's cutting up, but I've heard her say this more than once. She said, I don't care if Tim gets a concubine, she can help me clean this house. Kind of took the romance out of it. Of course, she was kidding. She don't want Brother Tim. Brother Tim, I promise you, Tim Colley don't want no concubine. <laughs> he got Sister Ruth. That's enough to do him. Anyway, under the Old Testament economy, men had many wives. And also had, if you were in a place of power, you had concubines. Abraham, Hagar, you know. Uh, Sarah was convinced. And here's, here's the thing. They gave up on God's promise. Don't ever do that. I know, Brother Andy, but they got old. Abraham was old. Sarah was well past childbearing. She done went through menopause. She was well past childbearing age, and they were old. But God had promised them. I know, Brother Andy, but, you know, they were old. It don't matter. It don't matter that they got old. The pre-incarnate Christ visits them to inform them at this time next year Sarah's going to have a child, and it's going to be a son. And Sarah's listening back behind the tent. Ain't that what people do? I almost said, ain't that what women do, but I didn't because I've lived this long. <laughs> ain't that what people do? Back behind that tent, listening. About the, I mean, I'm not going to try to attempt to imitate the voice of the Lord, but speaking to Abraham, the pre-incarnate Christ, says to him about this time next year, she's going to have a baby. And she's thinking, <laughs> Abraham ain't half the man he used to be, and I'm done. And, that, and, and because they look on how things appear, they, make, uh, they jump to conclusions. And that's what we all do. But never, when God gives you a promise, man, don't jump no conclusion. I don't care. If, you are, if he says, did you going to win the Olympic 100-meter dash, and you are 150 years old, if God says it's going to happen, get ready to run. It's going to happen. Why? Because he will make it happen. Abraham and Sarah look upon themselves and says, with us it is impossible. And they were right. And then they make this horrible mistake. Well, Hagar's young, you know. She'll bear Abraham, uh, you know, a son. Sarah said, I I'm, I'm unable to conceive children. Abraham is still able at this time, point in time. And they said, we'll just give God a hand. And, and what do you get? Ishmael. The wild man, the wild man, and his descendants are still wild. Verse 32, now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash, his father, in Oprah, Ophrah. Now, I'll share with you, and misspelling of this is how Oprah Winfrey got her name. It's, it's Ophrah, but uh, her mama dropped that P and, and it just pronounced Oprah but it's made her a lot of money. Ophrah of the Abirzerites. 
So it was as soon as Gideon was dead, as soon as he died, 40 years later, that the children of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. Now I've gone into part of the nasty details of what the attraction was to Baal worship. It was entirely had to do with the lust of the flesh. I'll just leave it right there. But that's what trapped Israel again and again and again and has done it again. Thus the children of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. It is human nature to forget. It's just human nature to do that. It is human nature to, to forget milestones. Israel does this because of the attraction of Baal worship. It is attractive to the lust of their flesh. They are ensnared by it. They indulge in it because of that reason. But in doing so, they offend the Lord. Verse 35, not only did they not, not remember that the Lord had delivered them from the Midianites, they're eating good now. They don't remember the time when they didn't eat so good because the Midianites come in and stole all their stuff. Verse 35, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubel, the house of Gideon, in accordance with the good he had done for Israel. They didn't remember the Lord, and they didn't show kindness to Gideon's descendants. So what? Because fallen human nature is self-centered. What have you done for me lately? And how do I feel? And it's exactly what Kenny Marsh preached in this house. That people today are so self-centered. And, and it has in the, this attitude has invaded the church. And you see people by the gazillions flocking to some preacher who they believe is going to tell them how they can make stuff better for themselves. How they can make themselves richer or how they can make themselves whatever. But it's all about me. Instead of, Lord, your will be done, it is, Lord, what have you done for me? What can you do for me? And the, it's not supposed, the, the, the focus is not supposed to be on us, beloved. It's supposed to be on Christ. Because we ain't saved unless Jesus says, Father, not my will, but your will be done. As he sweats great drops of blood. Ain't about us. Hate to bruise your ego. It ain't about Andy. For sure, it's about Jesus. Let us remember all the good things. It is a sin. If you're a part of this church family, I'll just tell you flat out, it is a sin for anybody who has been associated with this congregation to forget what the Lord has done for us. Why don't we go marching out to that rock altar every second Sunday in October, Brother Andy, even if it's raining even if it's cold, even if the wind is blowing, even if lightning is dropping, even if a hurricane or a tornado is about to hit the ground, why is it that you folks don't allow anything to stop you from going to that rock altar every October on the second Sunday of October? Because I personally, as your pastor, got my mind made up that we are not going to forget what the Lord has done for us. Because I remember that first Sunday afternoon when this was just a pasture and all we had on it was that old barn up here at the corner of the road and at the end of that day we had a pile of rocks 
but the Lord had given us this land. And look what he has done with it over the years. Brother Moses was so impressed with our cornerstone that it only bears the name of the Lord, not a board, not a deacon board, not a building committee, nobody else. His name and his name alone adorns that cornerstone. Brother Moses was so taken with that that when he went back to India, he put a similar cornerstone on his building in Vijuar. That's the thing to do. That's the idea. Praise God. Let us not forget all his benefits. He's good to us. If he wasn't, we wouldn't be here. Day's going to come. We're all going to face him. But for his children, is joy unspeakable. Forever. We lose sight of that because we're so, you know, temporal-minded. Well, you know, how do I feel now? What's my situation now? And we don't dwell on uh, the good promise of God. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And as sure as I've gone away, I'm coming back. When I do, I'm going to snatch you off this rotten, sin-cursed world and bring you into my presence, and so shall you ever be with me. Nothing beats that. Nothing. Ain't nothing in this world worth trading that for. Because that's as good as it gets. Glory. Well, I felt like preaching, but I ain't. We're going to go to the Lord in intercessory prayer. Everybody over at Oakview Nursing Home, 801, hey, I just about hit it. Everybody over at Oakview Nursing Home, we want to remember them tonight.